Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today I'm joined uh, by the guy who flies the flag for that wee corner of Scotland called Orkney, a land of peculiar interest in archaeology, artefacts and old stone. Their main attraction being the old man of Hoy. I thought I was a bit harsh. I thought Mr. MacArthur looked good for his age, but without further ado, ladies and gents, Liam MacArthur, how are you doing today, Liam? You all right? I'm doing very well. I'm going to take exception to that because I remember when I was, after I was first elected in 2007, there was um, a, a picture of me taken um, outside the, uh, alongside the Ring of Brogga, where the headline was the new kid on the block. So now I've got to the point of being referred to as the old man Ahoy. Clearly, uh, <laughs> clearly my political career is in a tailspin. Uh, brilliant. Well, so what's your story, Liam? Where are you from in that? I was uh, I was born in Edinburgh um, uh, back in 67 and um, lived there till I was about nine or ten. And then my dad decided that uh, he'd had enough of um, uh, running a print uh, firm uh, just on the outskirts of Edinburgh. He wanted to um, be a fisherman. So uh, he bought a boat and we hightailed it up from the, the new town in Edinburgh to an old blacksmith smithy um, in, uh, in an island called Sandy, which is one of the North Isles in, in, in Orkney, population of about 500. Um, so I went from Stockbridge Primary School to, to Sandy Community School, which is a bit of a culture shock, um, and brought up in the, in the islands um, to my secondary education, which was, which was fantastic. And then um, returned to Edinburgh for, for university after spending a a year in, in Mexico in an exchange program as the adopted family, uh, the adopted son of a family in uh, the state of Oaxaca. Um, and after uni, I did politics at uni and um, uh, managed to do a bit of studying in between playing an awful lot of football. Um, and after that, I, uh, I, I took up a job as a researcher for um, the then MP for Orkney and Shetland, Jim Wallace. Um, I worked in London for a couple of years and then went over to Brussels and did an internship in the European Commission and ended up spending about five years um, over there, um, returning eventually to Edinburgh via London, um, where I rejoined with, uh, teamed up again with Jim Wallace, who was by that stage the Deputy First Minister, and I uh, took on a role as a special advisor for him. And then after Jim announced that he was stepping down, not just as party leader, um, uh, but as an MSP, and that was in 2005, he announced he wasn't going to stand at the next election. I spent, uh, um, I went through the agonies over a, over a summer holiday in, in, in France and um, trying to work out whether or not I wanted to throw my hat in the ring um, for the selection and decided that it was probably one of those things where it wouldn't necessarily put, get the, the work-life balance back into some sort of order, but it's something that if I didn't do, I'd be kicking myself years down the line. So um, I threw my hat in the ring, got selected and, and got elected in 2007. Um, and uh, at that point, did what my parents had done to me back in the late 70s by bringing my family up to, to Orkney. And that's where we've been based uh, ever since. And, and it's been it's been wonderful. I spent a lot of time away. I suppose that's one of the big regrets. I do spend a lot of time away from home, but it's been a wonderful place to, to, to bring up a young family. And I don't regret for a second um, the decision we took. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's fair to say you were Jim Wallace's right-hand man then for, for a number of years. These are both Lib Dems. Uh, he's had some career, uh, mm -hmm. which has now been recognised in his presence in the House of Lords. But mm -hmm. I was wondering what you thought of that kind of establishment, uh, Liam. You know, the way I see Lib Dems is localised decision-making, empower, empowering people. You know, you're liberals, you're, you're Democrats. And something doesn't sit well with me, the idea of, you know, sort of localised decision-making and also having an establishment that's with unelected sort of politicians and I think the uh, I remember the SDV interviewed uh, a number of Ouija's when Michael Gove uh, suggested that it might come come up to Glasgow and well it's, it's safe to say it was a resounding no from from everyone that was interviewed but I just wonder what your thoughts on that kind of establishment were. I mean I don't think anybody can can really justify an, an unelected second chamber in, in this day and age it's what you replace it with um, and I think that's been um, that's been one of the difficulties that, that setting up a, um, an elected second chamber that, in a sense, um, 
would potentially uh, be on a, a on a par with the uh, with, with, with the House of Commons, and, and you end up setting up a an institution in, in, in almost a permanent conflict over who has the most um, legitimate mandate. Um, but I, I think uh, a second chamber is is necessary, and, and, and having it on a on an unelected basis, even if. Um, at the moment, um, the, uh, the, there's been a significant move away from the hereditary principle. That's still there. Um, and, and what we've seen, particularly uh, in recent times, but frankly, it's not unique to, to, to this, the current um, UK government, is a system of patronage that is routinely abused um, for, for political purposes. And I, I just don't think that is acceptable. For as long as it exists, um, I think there's an argument for saying you're, you're better being in it and using it um, as, as some kind of counterbalance to, to, to what we're seeing um, in the House of Commons and, and by successive UK governments. I would argue that, for example, during the Brexit process, I think the House of Lords provided um, more of an effective um, and articulate challenge to what um, Theresa May and and subsequently Boris Johnson were trying to do, but that's not an argument for, for keeping it in its current form. It's just, I think, recognising that um, it does it, it does perform a role um, that is valuable, but it needs to have legitimacy. And I don't think it's just about the House of Lords. I think I think constitutional reform more generally in terms of changing the, the, the electoral system. I mean, a first-past-the-post system that, that, that routinely... Uh, provides um, wholly disproportionate um, majorities on the basis of, of public support that falls well short of even 50% isn't sustainable either and, and, and allows politicians simply to tack to their core base and not seek to broaden their appeal and trying to bring people uh, with them. So I think we can focus on the House of Lords. I understand absolutely why we need to do that. Um, but I, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that there's an, arg an equally strong argument for electoral reform at a UK level and indeed um, further reform in terms of devolving powers within the UK, particularly within England. I think the Scottish Parliament um, has demonstrated its ability to articulate very well um, the, the, the voice of, of Scots and Scotland as a, a, as a whole. Um, and taking on responsibility for um, many of the, the, the decisions that affect people's day and daily lives. You see less of that um, in, in England, where that kind of vortex of London in the southeast is, is as much a kind of impediment for the regions in England as it is um, for Scotland, Wales or, or Northern Ireland. So I think that constitutional reform is, is long overdue, and, and, and part of that would be reform in the House of Lords. Well, we spoke about empowering people just there, especially in a democratic sense. Uh, you know, the UK government, I don't know if you've seen, well, I'd imagine you've seen this, uh, Liam, I've just passed a bill which limits our right to protest. Uh, you know, I was speaking to Ben McPherson about this at the tail end of last mm -hmm. year. You can get something like 51 years imprisonment for acts of protest, like chaining yourself to public property, which was absolutely iconic in, in the fight against the apartheid, for example. You know, we're lighting up our parliament buildings just now, Liam, for Ukraine and their right to self-determination, you know, their right to democracy. And that, in my opinion, that's taken a leaf out of Putin's playbook. And most importantly, why aren't mainstream medias like the BBC reporting on this? You know, why aren't we having a proper conversation about this bill? Because it's absolutely monumental what's coming through. I think I think you're right. I mean, I think, to be fair, I think the mainstream media has focused on it. I think the difficulty at the moment is it's very difficult to focus on anything other than the horrendous situation in Ukraine and and in the neighbouring states there. I, and, and I think in terms of news cycles, we've seen this um, over the years that, um, that with the best will in the world, you can't focus on all of the issues you absolutely need to be focusing on. But you're, you're right, the, the, the kind of insidious nature of, of what's been proposed in, in this bill it should be deeply concerning um, to anybody um, with an interest in, in, in our liberal democracy. I mean, small l, small d, but um, we pride ourselves on, on um, our ability to, to protest, our freedoms of, of speech and of... of um, of association and and and, um, and being able to express 
um, freely those those views and and to challenge very robustly um, those in power and those making the decisions. I think to some extent during the the Brexit protests we saw that tip too far into um, behaviour that that that. That, that was nothing to do with freedom of speech and and was was um, uh, was aggressive was threatening etc. But but actually what this bill uh, risks um, uh, preventing or or, um, or, or, or criminalising is behaviour that's nothing to do with that. It is about the legitimate right to protest. And back to your previous point about the House of Lords, again, the House of Lords actually has made, um, I think, greater advances in trying to strip back some of the worst successes of, of, of this bill. Again, not an argument for retaining the House of Lords in its current form, but I think demonstrating um, that in that um, forum, there are those who... I seem able to, 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 to make an argument that is um, rooted more in, in, in principle and actually has more of a, draws more on the kind of historical precedent and can think forward to, to where this takes you, whatever the kind of bland assurances you get from ministers that nobody that's doing anything wrong has anything to fear, which is um, which is the, the 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 kind of bland reassurance you'll you'll often get from from ministers who are trying to railroad something they they, they probably know in their heart of hearts they shouldn't be uh, they, they shouldn't be going anywhere near. Um, so I I mean there's still the potential to to um, to, to 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 roll back um, from this and at a present time where there are so many issues upon which people feel very strongly. And the notion that you would you would seek to curb their right to protest and have their voice heard um, is more anathema than than, than than ever. Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking about big issues. It's hard not to talk about what's going on in Ukraine just now, Liam. Um, what strikes me the most is that the last time an international organisation like the United Nations was reformed, it was the Second World War. You know, it was previously called the League of Nations. We brought in a charter that said using military aggression against borders is strictly against so-called international law. And the reason I say so-called is because there's no international judge and jury. You know, there's been repeated violations, which, in my opinion, has basically made it meaningless. You know, nobody actually respects it, including the uh, Great Britain and ourselves. And, you know, once the conflict is over, surely we can't return to the way we've previously done things. You know, we can't have a security council in which Russia has permanent membership. And we, ha we have to change that. We've not achieved or learned anything from the last reform. We went back 100 years. The big boys storm into these countries, obliterate them when it suits their interests, and there's no concrete institutions that stop them. Surely we need to give everything in our capacity to restore faith in global security. And surely by doing that, we demand Russia is expelled or we just walk away from it entirely. You know, we don't have any genuine say anyway, to be honest. We've been holding Americans ha America's hand for, for decades now. Just about everything we go for, you know, China and Russia vetoes. You know, what's the point in it? I mean, I, I think it is quite, I think, understandable that, that there is a lot of... The council of despair at the moment because these mechanisms for for holding in check um, national um, uh, national interests um, where those national interests encroach very directly onto the national interests and sovereignty of other nations um, are, are seen to be um, uh, so dangerous and 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 at risk of, of escalating. I mean I think the I think one of the interesting things is to look at the patterns we've seen over um successive decades where actually the behavior um or the response of the international community to the behavior of of, of those whether you're talking about autocratic regimes or whether you're just talking about um sort of murderous um, uh, regimes in certain parts of the world, I, they look at, 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 at what the kind of predecessors managed to get away with um, and what it is that, that, that keeps the, uh, the international community on the, on the back foot. Um, 
and and they make a judgment about what they think they will be able to to, to get away with. Um, the risk in simply saying you exclude those who have behaved in the way that Putin has behaved or the way that China behaves more insidiously or whether it's regimes in 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 um, in um, Somalia or or or, or, or where, wherever you want to um, pick out a, an, an atrocity down through the ages. I mean, unless you unless you get them involved in part of that 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 process, it's difficult to exercise um, any great control over it. And all you end up with is 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 kind of um, power blocks butting up against each other. And to some extent, that's what we're we're, we're told we're seeing here in terms of. Um, what's alleged to be the sort of expansionist notions of, of, of or desire, designs of, of NATO that have somehow pushed Putin to this point. I mean, I, I think that's a, a, a misreading of the situation. I think this is this is born of, of, of Putin's um, long-held worldview and view view of the, the breakup of the, the, the Soviet Union. Um, and it, it, it almost didn't matter what, um, what NATO has done. Paradoxically, what it's done is it, it, it's probably strengthened the, the unity within within NATO, um, which I mean you could make a very strong argument that during the during the uh, the, the, the Trump years was not all that far away from 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 starting to kind of un, unravel. Um, what the solution to it is, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, it strikes me that it's unlikely to simply be a military conclusion to this there's gonna have to be diplomacy built around it but but at the same time you can't be seen to be um getting around a negotiating table with Putin while his while his his, his kind of point of departure is effectively that um Ukraine has no legitimacy in in existing um, at all um but it, it again if you look through history there have been any number of examples of where the most um, desperate situations have have found a way of being um, resolved. Whether they've, 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 there's there's been a, a military conflict um, through that process, but ultimately you you need a, a solution that is that is negotiated. Whether it's negotiated on the back of a military defeat, um, or whether it can be negotiated at a point where there's a kind of stalemate and and, and all sides realise that there's there's nothing to be gained from continuing in the same in the same vein. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I think it would be risky to pretend that there are any easy solutions in this. Uh, I mean, the obvious one that, that strikes me at the moment is a very live debate is around whether or not imposing a no-fly zone um, over Ukraine um, is, is a, a sensible, useful, justifiable um, um, step for for NATO to take. I mean, I happen. I mean, I certainly understand why that that, that argument is being made and the, and the plea being made by um, by by um, President Zelensky. But I, I think the 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 risk is that um, the, the potential for escalating this and seeing it broaden out far beyond um, Ukraine's borders is very real and and. Um, and, and therefore, I, on balance, I, I, I think the argument against it at the moment. But nevertheless, it just shows that that, um, that there there really are no easy or palatable decisions at the moment. Um, not least because Putin um, has demonstrated that he is not prepared um, to to play by whatever the normal rules um, um, are and, 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 and is, is, is prepared to take the most extreme measures in order to, 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 to get his way. Um, but how you I mean how you build that back um, back up again um, at the conclusion of all this, I, I don't know, but it, it strikes me that you're right, there will be, um, a reordering of things um, because the, 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 the current mechanisms have proved themselves to be inadequate in preventing this from happening in the first instance or even um, stalling it um, once it was clear what Putin was, uh, was intent on doing. Well, you mentioned there that you think this was born out of Putin's worldview. I wonder what you thought 
Britain's role in all this is and whether we need to have a look at ourselves because I was writing last week, Liam, that I don't actually think Russia started this. In fact, I think we laid the groundwork for Putin. You know, folk talk about this monstrosity of an invasion, aggression for no reason in that, but look at all the places that the British military has been since the turn of the last century and forget anything. You can appeal to, you know, humanitarianism if you want, but no country military intervenes unless it is in their narrow-minded interest to do so. We've normalised this scale of war and look at the damage we've done. Look at the presidents we've set. Look at Syria, a war Putin was involved in on the other side, by the way. And I'm not having this. We weren't in the civil war. A lot of folk don't know this, but we were sending in airstrikes as recent as last year. And he's not, he knows what we're like. He's, we're not fooling anyone. You know, he, doesn't it show that America's true colors when they care about the, the welfare and the well-being of the Syrian people who live in just as distant a country as Ukraine, by the way, and when the Assad regime was using chemical weapons, and yet they're no interested when Ukrainian children are being shot dead, you know? So it's not as if Putin's going, oh, I used it for the greater good, that's fine. You know, arguably we started this world war and, you know- no, I, 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 I don't think I can, <laughs> well, I know I can't accept that in this. I mean, I-, I, I But, but we've not we, we... normalised that kind of behaviour. Look, 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 look at the amount of places the British military has been in, you know, since the turn of the century, the, the amount of civilians we've killed in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We've, we've laid this groundwork for that kind of behaviour, no? I, I I don't think there's there's an equivalence there. I mean, have, have we made um, catastrophic errors in terms of our foreign policy and our military engagements over the years? Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure that um, anybody argued that, that that Putin is using a kind of um, a, a, a UK foreign policy playbook here. I mean, that, that what he's doing um, in in Ukraine is is unprecedented in, in in recent modern times and pretty much since the second world war in in in, in europe i think the the, the debacle in, in in syria um was exactly that um it, i think it, it's it was more difficult to see what um what could be done in terms of um once the decision's taken that the, the, the Assad regime had to uh, had to be toppled, what you replace it with. Whereas I don't think anybody is arguing that the the, the, the legitimate, well, anybody other than, than Putin is arguing that the legitimate um, government um, uh, of, of Ukraine is, 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 is under President Zelensky and, and, and that it has, um, it, it has, it, it, However, however, how long this dispute has been going on in the eastern provinces of, of, of Ukraine, um, this was an unprovoked attack um, by Russia on, on Ukraine. I mean, Syria, Syria was an altogether different set of circumstances in terms of the civil war that was ongoing within Syria. Um, and I, I, as I say, I mean, I wouldn't dispute that there were there were errors and serious errors that were made in terms of the foreign policy decisions and the military decisions that the UK took, um, that the, the, the US took, others that were involved in, in, in Syria took, and, and, and provided an opportunity for, for, for Putin to step in and, and play a device, dis, decisive um, role in, in, in the kind of outcome um, of, of, um, of that war. Um, in fact, the absence of, of action, one could argue, the absence of, of action by the Obama regime um, is seen by many as, as, um, as being influential in suggesting both to Assad and to Putin that there really wasn't a red line over which, uh, beyond which they couldn't go for, for, for fear of, um, sort of reprisals being, uh, being taken by, by the Western allies. So. Um, yeah, I I think there's always a bit of a, a, a tendency to to kind of look at these things through your own prism, but 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 frankly, um, the, the the aggressor uh, in this situation is is is, is Putin, and um, I think the response and and the unity of that response 
Um, I mean, after a bit of a shaky start um, in the run-up to the invasion itself, you you were seeing quite a sort of disunited um, approach taken by by um, different nations within Europe as well as the, the the US and elsewhere. I think since since the invasion started, you've seen a coming together, and and, and I think that is the only response you can. Um, that, 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 that you can give because Putin will use any disunity between um, those allies, play one off against the other, um, in order to, uh, to to support his ends. Well, I mean, you know, they said there's no commonalities, but there definitively is some commonalities. You know, we, we used military aggression um, and and found a will, uh, found a way when there was our will to act and and did whatever we. Uh, could to do so, we literally ob obliterated uh, Afghanistan, for example. We showed that power isn't constrained in written documents. You know, if big powers like America, uh, Britain and Russia want to intervene, there's nothing like the UN Charter stopping them. Um, and numerous governments uh, in Britain have overseen military interventions, which a lot of people think are unjustified. Now, Alex Cole Hamilton is... You know, the Scottish Liberal Democrats leader, he, he was on uh, the tail end of last year. He's a Quaker. He's a he's a pacifist. So I, I wonder, would the Liberal Democrats have any uh, troops in the countries that I've just mentioned there? Would, would we be spending anything on defence? Because Jeremy Corbyn had this idea, let's get rid of all these stupid weapons and these major deterrents. But, you know, leaders like Starmer and Johnson... Um, after this, I've said, well, no, we're, we still need to increase spending and we need to have maximum security for the UK going forward. So I'm just wondering, you know, in light of, you know, Alex Cole Hamlet and being a pacifist, what the Lib Dems would have done in these situations? Well, I think we we supported the uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. We opposed the um, the uh, uh, sort of the illegal war in Iraq and, and were. Um, took uh, certainly Charles Kennedy took a, a leadership role at the time in, in opposing that and pointing out the um, the, uh, the the folly of it. Um, I don't think anybody necessarily could have imagined how quickly and badly it would unravel, but um, it, it, it certainly demonstrates that there are interventions where um, I think you can build um, a, a coalition of support um, internationally um, and, and seek to use the mechanisms for for uh, for, for uh, justifying that intervention um, I mean national sovereignty is 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 given quite rightly um, uh, considerable weight and that you only um, you are only justified in intervening across another country's borders um, in in extreme circumstances so I, I think I think there's there's no doubt that um, the the invasion of, of Iraq in, in 2003 um, did make it more difficult for um, the UK, the US, um, and others to to take any sort of high moral ground. I think the the, the invasion into Afghanistan um, under the, the the Taliban regime was a was a a, a different um, case entirely. Uh, and around which I think there was greater international support and, and, and legal certainty. Um, I think in terms of um, defence spending, um, I, I mean, I'll leave Alex to, to speak for himself, but um, I've always been a, a multilateralist rather than a unilateralist. I think it's, it is naive to simply say um, that, that we get away, uh, we, we just do away with defence spending. I think even, even those countries that are neutral have defence budgets, uh, even if they would argue they're for self-defence rather than projection beyond the borders. But I, I, I think we have, for, 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 um, for good or ill, um, have historically more of a, um, uh, I suppose, a responsibility um for um what happens in, in in parts of the world where we were we were present kind of under empire um and we have relationships there which have, have, are not the same as as other countries but at the same time we also need to recognize that um that, that times move on we are we are not um at the turn of the um, of the 20th century or even the, the, the middle of the 20th century 
um, and projecting the the power that we um, we military certainly the military power that we had at that stage. I think we still we project a, for want of a better expression, the soft power um, through the uh, through things like um, BBC World Service, through the British Council, through our embassy network, etc. And and that is a good thing. I think that it, it's too easy um, to, 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 I think, seduce yourself into thinking if you, if you kind of draw up the, the, the drawbridge and, 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 um, and keep yourself to yourself, then um, kind of everything will be fine, at least for you, if not for, for, for others. I think we have a role to, to engage in, in, in the international community. And, and with that comes, comes issues that are, are, are difficult to manage and, and, and um, in some instances extremely difficult to manage. Um, I, I think the, uh, the, the defence challenge has, has, has changed what, you, what you're spending um, your defence budget on um, has to evolve to, to reflect the, uh, the changing threat. Um, but, but just because you think that you are a, a reasonable, um, pragmatic um, player on the international scene doesn't mean that there aren't those whose, um, uh, whose leaders um, uh, view their national interests very, very differently from, from you and, and, and that pose a threat. Another question, Liam, uh, a question that everyone's asking just now is, do, do you think the UK is doing enough? Uh, it came out this morning that, you know, it's been almost two weeks. Poland has taken a million refugees and so far Britain's taken 50 in total. Uh, people will rightfully point to the geographical logistics of that. But there's been over 13,000 legitimate applications so far, which... By the way, we've not made very easy for these people, and it's a, not an easy thing to do during wartime anyway. But um, Boris Johnson is is insisting that there's security concerns to think about as well. And, you know, but contrarily, if you look at countries like France, they're, they're seizing assets of oligarchs, and yet folk like Abramovich has all the time in the world to sell Chelsea Football Club and make sure he's covered. So I want to ask you, do you think we're doing enough at the minute? No. No, um, I, I don't really think anybody is. I mean, there's. Uh, it may be one thing if you're a UK minister um, arguing that you're you're going as fast as you think you you can go, but um, I don't think anybody seriously um, would suggest that we're doing enough. I think in terms of the humanitarian response, it needs to be far more generous, um, but it, 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 it certainly needs to reflect to a greater extent the scale of um of of the challenge posed by by this movement of of um, people within europe and as you say in this i mean it, i think as with other um displacements um whether due to war conflict or famine or whatever you do tend to find that people want to remain closer to where they've moved from, so that in the event that conflict ends, that the, the um, famine is over, whatever it may be, um, that, that that it's it's more straightforward to return to your to your home, return to your community. So I, I don't I think there's a humanitarian response that that, that requires us and others who are slightly further um, from um, those neighbouring countries, from the area of conflict, to support those neighbouring countries. Um, in shouldering more of that responsibility, because I, I think that will continue to be needed. But that isn't a reason not um, to uh, to be far more um, uh, uh, welcoming of, of those um, that do want to come um, to the UK. And um, I think comparisons have been made with um, the, the the response um, uh, back of World War Two. And yeah, I don't think anybody could argue that the security risks at that stage were any lesser than they, they, they are at the moment. So I think we need a response that's proportionate to the scale of the challenge. And, and at the moment, um, both in terms of um, the receiving of, of refugees, in terms of the, the process whereby even those, as you say, who, who have a legitimate claim that, that, that um, conform to all the uh, very strict criteria that uh, are in, in place for such applications at the moment, 
those are processed uh, in a far more kind of timely fashion. Um, but we need to we need to expand that, and we also need to expand our efforts in terms of the the support to to those other countries that are are likely to to be shouldering more of the the, the responsibility. And in terms of of um, sanctions and, and and seizing assets, yeah, I, 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 again we've been a bit slow off the mark, and some we've we've been um, I think commendably um, forceful in some areas. My, um, I, I was on record raising at the start of last week the, the, the risk of uh, a Russian-owned vessel pulling into um, Flotta in my Orkney constituency in order to pick up oil for transfer either to the Netherlands or, or, or Germany. So, you know, like, how on earth can this be um, uh, compliant with the sanctions that are already in place? Leave aside where we need to, to, to go going forward. Um, and to the credit, the UK government has responded. The the the, uh, the 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 ban has been put in place, affecting um, Russian-owned flag-leased um, vessels entering any UK ports. So uh, there are legal complexities around this, but it does appear that in some instances we we are we are acting more slowly than than uh, than we should even given the fact that you want to kind of nail down the the, the legalities of this because the last thing you want to be doing is opening yourself up to, to some sort of costly uh, costly challenge well returning to what the liberal democrats are all about liam i think you guys uh, are it's safe to say famously pro-european uh, i think you've wanted the euro at one point you are internationalists and said to working across borders uh, now, Keir Starmer the other week said, look, we voted for Brexit. That's how it is. We need to uh, make Britain a better place because that's the decision we made. It's done. And the Conservatives are saying the same thing. Do you, what do you think of that, David? Do you think our fate is sealed or do you think there is a potential future you know, in the European Union uh, for, for Britain? I, I mean, I, I, I fervently hope and believe that is where our long-term um, future and, and certainly our interests lie. I think all we've seen from, from, from Brexit to date, and it's been pretty mooted as a result of, of the pandemic, um, but we, we are seeing day and daily the, the effects of, of, of Brexit. Um, and and where even where um, uh, there's a sort of pragmatism um, exercised by um, the UK on the one hand and our, and our um, partners in the EU uh, on the other, actually just the, the mechanics of doing business and, 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 and all the rest of it um, or, or, or moving around are just that bit more complicated than they were before and that they need to be. I mean, I, I think... I think, as I say, our, that is where ultimately our, our long-term future and our interests lie. I think that's a different question um, uh, to whether or not we can afford to be continuing to rerun the Brexit referendum now and, and, and over the, 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 the coming months. I think, uh, I think unfortunately, that was, that was um, sealed in the uh, election result in, in, in 2019. Um, and, and Boris Johnson and, and those who supported it need to own the consequences of it. Um, I think few of the, the kind of potential benefits that were promised um, have materialised. Um, many of the, 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 the disbenefits have, although maybe not to the, the, the fullest extent yet. And, and at the same time, um, you've got um, the, the UK government um, so unilaterally reopening um, agreements that um, that they solemnly made with with their EU partners, which won't have gone unnoticed by those that were looking to strike deals with um, uh, into the future. So I think it, it's deeply regrettable. I think it's an act of of of, of remarkable self harm. Um, uh, and uh, I, 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 as I say, I think ultimately we will um, we will end up. Um, with our, our our futures more um, closely entwined, and, and I think in the meantime, I would I would hope that um, we can just quietly go about ensuring that we continue to to um, uh, to work as collaboratively as we can with our, our, our EU um, partners. Um, I think accentuating um, those similarities, uh, celebrating the differences 
but but not doing so to the extent um, that just simply makes everybody's life more more difficult is is uh, is where we kind of need to be for the uh, for the next wee while. Well, I've got an idea for you, Liam. Right, Go because on. there is one route that people will point to that I think fits quite well with the Liberal Democrats remit, and that would be the the option of Scottish independence. You know, you'd have more localized power. We could be internationalists and an EU member working across borders. Pro-independence people will say, look, you're not cutting ties with the rest of the UK. We can work together as, as partners and friends. It isn't it like a see you later type of thing? We won't be speaking again. So what, what's the problem with that kind of route? Well, because it's the same arguments that Brexiteers used um, in relation to, to Brexit. I mean, what what um, often amazes me is if you if you shut your eyes and listen to the Brexiteer playbook, um, and 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 now listen to, um, to 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 Scottish nationalists making that argument for for independence, um, substitute Brussels for 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 London, and and it's a it's a complete read across. I mean, the answer to to nationalism is not more nationalism. Um, I think erecting borders um, within the UK um, is is every bit, if not considerably, uh, more disadvantageous than, than than even what we've got at the moment. And, and as as I've said on many occasions, simply compounding the problems created by Brexit um, with with independence isn't in anybody's interest. I mean, over the next five years, four years now to the, the, uh, the next parliamentary elections, I think there is enough to be getting on with in terms of, of rebuilding from the pandemic, in terms of addressing the climate emergency, um, and uh, I, I, and I think rebuilding services, rebuilding um, our, our, our economy, that the notion that we would sink ourselves into a debate that we know... <laughs> we know is divisive. I mean, it's not just along political lines, it's divisive within families, it's divisive within workplaces, it's divisive within communities. However much the SNP like to talk about this um, kind of high-spirited civic nationalism, we know it divides. It becomes it's a very poisonous debate. People feel very strongly about it. I'm not I'm not dismissing um the 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 um the emotional attachment that, that anybody has to their particular cause here. But I don't think anybody can seriously argue that we can go through a referendum process without it tearing us apart again. Um, and I, I just think that's the that's the last thing we uh, we need over the course of the, ne the next few years. As I say, we've got plenty, plenty to be going on with issues that, that predated the pandemic. And much as SNP ministers like to tell us that um, it, it's uh, it, it's all the pandemic that's made things worse. Well, it, it might have been, but but we were in crisis mode in parts of our health service and elements of um, our education school provision and in in, in the sluggishness of our, our, our economy um, pre March twenty twenty. And and those those issues will not be resolved. I don't think. Um, if we uh, if we spend um, the resources, the time, the emotional energy in knocking lumps out of each other over uh, <laughs> over our constitutional future, well, let's say it it does happen, Liam. Um, you know, I mean, it is up in the air just now, especially with what's going on in Ukraine. Whether it's actually feasible, um, I think the SNP want to have it next year. You know, I, but I, in this, I, I, I mean, I, it's not just about not. In, engaging in hypoth hypotheticals. I mean, the SME say they want to have it next year, but there isn't a route to them having it. So the danger is we end up having a debate about something where, unlike in 2014, where there was there was a, a, an agreement on the Section 30 order and the route to having a, a, a clear, um, legally watertight referendum, we don't have that route at the moment. And, and therefore, I think one of the problems I have is not that the SNP and, and, and now the Greens, who appear to have now become a kind of um, as fixated with independence as, as the SNP are, um, that we have a debate about something that there is no certainty we're going to is going to come to come to pass. So um, I'm I'm a bit reluctant to get drawn into that because, as I say, there are plenty of other issues with which. I would wholeheartedly agree. I think I will find common cause with with my many of my colleagues and not just the SNP, probably the, the Green Party, Labour, and indeed the Tories about that kind of recovery, um, that green recovery, 
um, that we that we need to see. Um, and, and I think that's a far more valuable um, and worthwhile um, use of our time. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, I won't draw you into hypotheticals there, but let's, <laughs> let's have a little bit of reflection then, because uh, Jackie Bailey uh, came out this uh, at the start of this week and said that working with the Tories in 2014 was a huge mistake, something that she would, she absolutely regrets. You know, if would you have done it differently in in sense? Would do you regret working with the the Tories yourselves as Liberal Democrats? Would you have run a separate campaign or? I mean, there's a difficulty in 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 running entirely separate campaign and the, the the messages that you you put out. You don't have an awful lot of time to convince people of, of your arguments. There needs to be a bit of a consistency of of message. I mean, I have to say that um, Douglas Rossi's vision for, for 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 Scotland and indeed the United Kingdom looks very very different to to mine. I mean, the only the only crossover in the Venn diagram is I believe that Scotland's future is within a, a reformed United Kingdom. Um, so we each come at it with our from our different um, perspectives. Um, I, look, I, I think we'll uh, we'll we'll see what um, see where we are in a year or two years' time. Um, uh, these, these things have have a, have a, a habit of um, resolving those themselves once uh, once you know exactly what it is that uh, that confronts you. At the moment, I I can't see the the pathway to uh, an independence referendum, another independence referendum. Uh, I'm not going to aid and abet Nicola Sturgeon in, in getting there because I just don't think it's it's in our interest. So. So spending, as I say, spending the time conjecturing over um, what the campaign strategy might be, what the campaign message might be, and who I'm out on the on the stump with. I mean, I have to say, it, it is interesting um, for all these people um, who, who declare that they would um, never in a million years be seen dead campaigning with anybody from this party or the next party. I mean, frankly, if you if you were to look around the, the Holyrood campus on a on a um, on any business day, you would see Tories deep in conversation with SNP um, colleagues on a uh, on any number of different issues. So the notion that some people are are beyond the pale and you can, you can't do business with them just doesn't stack up. As I say, I mean my my vision of of, of what Scotland and the UK. Um, looks like into the medium to longer term will look very different from Douglas Ross and probably from Anasawa um, uh, uh, as well. But um, I think uh, I think Scottish politics has become um, too tribal um, over, uh, over over recent times, and taking some of that heat out of it um, and, and shedding a bit more light um, would uh, would not necessarily be a bad thing. What about that, eh? Untribal politics. What a statement, Liam. Absolutely uh, love that to end. Just teeing you up, eh? Just teeing you up. Yeah, no, I absolutely <laughs> appreciate that. Well, listen, we're coming to an end, Liam. It's been an absolute pleasure. I do like to end these things with a few light-hearted, uh, quick-fire questions just to show the... This is where I fall flat on my face, isn't it? What was that? This is where I fall flat on my face. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, I was going to ask you, first of all, who's at your dinner table? Yeah, four people. Let's see. Who who would you be at your ideal dinner table? How many have I got around the table? You've got four. I've got four. Um, I would probably have to have Kenny Dalglish. Um, uh, just just kind of child childhood icon and 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 hero. Um, probably almost by his own admission, not the world's um, greatest conversationalist, but but nuggets of wisdom with uh, with, with every utterance. Who else? Um. Oh. Tell you what, I've said. I think I've said this before, but I, for consistency's sake, I would say my wife Tamsin, um, because I spend so much bloody time away that if I were to have a meal and not invite her, um, I think that would be uh, that would be unforgivable. Um, Very romantic, the Liberal Democrats. Oh, it's it is, yeah, yeah I'm not sure inviting Kenny Dalglish to your romantic candlelit dinner for five, isn't it? <laughs> 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 um, God. I've no idea. It, it would change by the bloody day. I'd, I'd no sooner have issued the invitations than I'd be regretting inviting one and, and not somebody else. Who else? What about what about an actor and an actress? Yeah, I'm. I've, 
dating back to my days as one of three mods in Orkney in the uh, in the early 1980s, um, I, I, I feel as if I ought to uh, invite um, Paul Weller over um, as well. And um, let's see. Uh, what about a politician that you you admired growing up? Or who, who did you base your sort of political activist okay. life on? Don't, don't want another politician there. It's, I, that's, <laughs> just, that's, 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 that's just crowding me out now. Um, because I tell you what, I, 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 um, Sandy Toxfig has always struck me as somebody who would just be brilliant company. Um, so I think I'd, I'd, I'd invite her along. Um, so yeah, that's four, isn't it? Yeah, that's your four. That's your four. Yeah. Utterly, utterly random. Yeah. Um, well, listen, if you, one person you could appoint prime minister that isn't a politician, who would it be? Are you allowed to say David Attenborough, or is that too much of a cliche at this stage? You're absolutely allowed to say David Attenborough. Yeah, the guy's an absolute fine. legend. Fine. Yeah. David Attenborough. I, I mean, he'll be you'll be wondering why on earth I've not invited him round for dinner. Um, but I can I can justify it by saying you're too busy being prime minister in my world. Fair enough. Well, listen, I'm an Edinburgh man. I'm a football man as well. I have to ask you, green or maroon? <laughs> it's green, but it's the wrong side of the country. I'm afraid. Oh, it's, oh, really? No, I grew up in. I, I went to Stockbridge Primary, and um, I, it was an it was a it was a hib school, um, but I was a I was a mad um, Kenny Dalglish fan, so I supported Celtic. I was about one or two, maybe three in the in the school, in the whole school that supported Celtic. And the day that Pat Stanton signed for Celtic, the whole bloody school shifted over to supporting Celtic. It lasted about a week, and then they kind of drifted back. Um, but no, I've, I've always been a Celtic fan, I'm afraid. Wow, well, uh, my old man has actually got Pan Staten's number on his phone and it saved his uh, God. So you, you can have plenty yeah. to talk about. Well, I, I mean, uh, growing up, I used to, my dad used to take me to Easter Road. I, I mean, I remember, um, I remember watching um, Arthur Duncan. Jim MacArthur was in goal, so it was a, there was a MacArthur on the team sheet. So it was, uh, I always took a bit of, sort of vicarious pride in, in in that fact they uh, blackley and brownley and and uh, they had harper by that stage as well and I a, they had a cracking team but i was still a celtic fan i'm afraid well, listen you're a busy man Liam, so i'll let you go is there anything you want to say to our listeners before you go no listen um i, I think uh, just to, to to thank you Ennis, for and and untribal politics as i say um uh, it's uh, we need a lot more of that um, at the moment um i think everybody knows what folks are against but a bit more uh, finding the things that uh, unite us and, and maybe downplaying the stuff that, uh, that that we disagree on isn't necessarily a bad thing perfect thanks so much for them see you later take care cheers Nick.